So we love this church, we love you all, and your pastors, and uh, Steve and Blair and I go back about 35 years when he was a student at Washington Bible College where I was serving, and Steve and Blair, if you still remember the fact that just are one of those, uh, those students that makes a great influence on the whole campus, and you're just glad to have them there among the student body, so we are thankful.
She knew where to turn. Gospel of John, chapter 17. Arthur Pink says in his uh, biography of John Knox that she read John 17 to him every day during his terminal illness. And he was just locked into this wonderful chapter. And that's where I'm inviting you to turn to your Bibles this morning. Now we got three weeks until uh, we celebrate the great resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And before that, we enter into the Sanction Week. And it culminates with the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And you're going to hear a lot about the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember on the cross, one of what is often referred to as the seven last words. It is finished. The ransom was paid. The redemption was provided. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And so we love to talk and speak about the finished work of Christ. But this morning in John 17, I want us to think upon the unfinished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's true he paid sins and redemption once and for all. But now he is our great high priest that we read about from Hebrews 4 and that we are letting worship in that last song especially. Jesus we know is the prophet, the priest, and the king. As the prophet, he speaks forth the word from Father to Father to mankind. And so he's the ultimate inspired absolute truthful person who represents God and speaks to mankind. But as the priest, it's kind of reversed. As our great high priest, he now represents you and me. He represents his people before the throne of God. And I don't know of a chapter where we get a little bit of insight what is on the high priest's heart than here in uh, John 17. John is very careful to point to us in fact, every time you open John, and it's one of its 21 chapters, immediately put in your mind that what you're going to see is the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. He's fully God, and yet he's fully man. Matthew says he's the King of Israel, the Messiah we sang about. That's true. Mark says he's the servant of Jehovah. So true. Luke says he's the Son of Man, emphasizing his humanity and how he can sympathize with us in our in our weaknesses. But John says, this one of whom we preach is the very God of very gods. In the beginning, John goes all the way to eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made in Him. was life. The life was the life of man. And then he says, on down in that same chapter, in verse 14, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Really, that word is tabernacle. He pitched his tent among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten Son of full grace and truth. And then I just love what John says in, in uh, verse 18 of the first chapter, uh, where he says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. You see that word declared? I've circled that in my Bible. I love that word in the original Greek in which it was written because the Greek word, see if you can catch the English word that come from it, it says, He hath ex of 
exegete. That's what the job is of every Bible teacher, every pastor, to exegete the scriptures. That is to declare and make known what God intended when he inspired his holy word. Too many preachers today in our anemic pulpits are eisegesis. They make up their mind what they want to say, and then they tack this on kind of as proof. But the true the biblical pastor teacher is one who exegetes. He brings out the truth of God, and he unveils it to us as we listen and sit under the ministry. Well, John says Jesus exegeted the Father. So when Philip would say, uh, Jesus, show us the Father, and it will satisfy us. Jesus said, you've been so long with me. He that hath seen me, what class, has seen the Father. Everything I want to know about God the Father, the eternal Father, the everlasting Father, creator of heaven and earth, is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, our great high priest, is sympathetic to our weaknesses, being also the man. He suffered temptations to the ultimate extent. And with great confidence, we approach God through our high priest, the Lord Jesus, who is ever living every day, every moment of the day, making intercession for the likes of you and me. And we find grace and mercy to help in time of need. I don't know about you, but I'm telling you, honest truth, as I get older, the more I need the mercy of God, the more I need the grace of God and to be enveloped in the love of God. And that's what God wants us to grow into. And so John 17 in your Bible is truly the Lord's Prayer. Now, as I've been in this chapter, and I've been in it for several months now, it's like I got into it and I can't get out of it every day. But it's such a, a powerful chapter. And, uh, and, and as we get into this chapter, one of the thoughts that came to me is that it's kind of like the seamless tunic that the soldiers cast lots for at the cross. And you remember there were five things they cast lots for, four soldiers. One got this, one got that. But they didn't tear or disturb the seamless tunic. And I thought to myself, that's kind of like John 17. It's almost like you don't want to divide it because it's a seamless thread that is woven through the whole chapter. And the one is, is contingent and dependent upon the other. But there are three verses that, that help us uh, understand the, the flow of this prayer. Because there are three focuses that he makes in his prayer. And you can see them before you. In verses 1 to 8, Jesus prays for himself. But then he changed and he says, now I'm going to pray for these, that is, the, the apostles that God had given to in Jesus. And so Jesus prays for himself, then he prays for the apostles in verses 9 to 19. And then one of the most marvelous uh, verses you ought to read is in John chapter 17, where he says, and I'm not in verse 20, not only praying for these, that is, these apostles, but I'm praying for all those who shall future tense, believe on me through their word. And so the apostles have written the word, and we come along 2,000 years later, we hear the word, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word, and now I become a child of God because I have believed the word of the apostles. And the marvel of marvels is the Son of God sees down the corners of time, even to where we're living today, 2,000 years later, and he had us in mind. He had grace community. He 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I pray now for those who shall believe on me through his word. And so I don't hesitate to say this is the greatest prayer in the Bible. I mean, we are entering into the holiest of holies as the great high priest opens up his heart. And we can hear what is on his heart and mind. Just imagine this morning what, what we're privileged to do. We're getting part of a conversation that the second person of the God, and the triune Godhead, had with the Father. And we're hearing the actual words of the prayer that he made to the Father. And we get to see what is on uh, his heart on the night of his betrayal. So first of all, Jesus prays for himself, verses 1 to 8. Now we can place the prayer uh, in its timing just before uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is arrested in, in uh, Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal. And uh, you may remember that the cross now is about 12 hours away to suffer. And so just think of it somehow. Jesus knows exactly what's in front of him. And now, uh, in about 12 hours, maybe less, uh, they'll be hanging upon the cross. So if you start it up in the upper room discourse, you, you take the Gospel of John, you can break it down into two divisions. Chapters 1 to 12 is the revelation of Jesus to the world. That's what we call evangelism. That's where he unveils himself to people like Nicodemus and the Samaritan so it's his ministry to the unsaved people. But then in chapter 13, he takes his apostles and he takes them up to an upper room in Jerusalem. And there he begins ministering to his own, so it's Jesus' revelation to his own. And then at the end of chapter 14, after he, he washes the feet, chapter 13 talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit, that he's going to go away, that he's going to come back. Then he says, Arise, let us go from here at the end of chapter 14. So I assume they literally left the upper room. There's a replica over there today. You go to Jerusalem with us in June, you can see that replica. We'll take this same path. And he goes by the temple. And maybe, I don't know, maybe he stopped at the temple. Because the temple huge door had a vine engraved on it. Because the vine was the symbol of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And Isaiah makes it plain that the, the vine is, is Israel. And uh, maybe Jesus stopped there and just pointed to the vine and said, by the way, I'm the true vine. You are the branches. Then he teaches that. Then he teaches on uh, the Holy Spirit. And now he's getting ready. And what he's going to do is he's going to cross uh, the Kidron Brook because he has to do that in order to get up to Gethsemane. Now listen to John 17, 1, if you would. When Jesus had spoke these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then if you jump over to chapter 18, verse 1, now he prays the prayer, lifts up his eyes, he prays to God. Now at the end of his prayer, chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words in John 17, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, that is Gethsemane, where he and his disciples uh, entered. Now I am told that at this time of the year, uh, a season, and there was a contemporary historian who lived right at the time of Jesus. He said in, in the Passover, which they were just celebrating, that there would be at this season 256,000, over a quarter million, 256,000 lambs that were slain in the temple. 
was shed in the temple because of the Passover and all that in his lane. They had to get the blood out of the temple so they had to do it underneath and it would flow down where? To the Kidron Brook. One historian said the Kidron Brook at this time was a mute reminder of death. It was flowing with the red blood of the Passover lamb. Jesus knows the crucifixion is coming. He crosses that Kidron Brook. And as he looks down at that red blood, he knows it is speaking in typological, prophetical form as the blood that he now will be shedding on the cross of Calvary and all the suffering that goes with it. And so just before going across that mute reminder of death, Jesus leans against heaven and he prays to his Father, asking for the strength that he's going to need in the next several hours. You and I know when a person is facing death or when someone you love dearly is dying, you know that there's no greater drive in the heart of the child of God than the leaning against heaven and the praying to his Father. And what a comfort it is to face the last enemy, whether it's something you have some awareness of that it's coming soon, or whatever it is, but you're facing, you know it's just a matter of when, not if. And in, in those hours that are approaching, with all the uncertainty of what actually transpires, what's it going to be like to actually die? There's no greater pride than to pray to God and no greater comfort than His presence. And the great high priest is there with us as well. And He's going to see us through as we, as He intercedes for us. I hope you know that assurance. I, I hope you know that if it were your hour that was soon to be upon you, that you would have the confidence that because you have trusted and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sins have all been forgiven, and God has given you the gift of eternal life. So having seen the place of this prayer, what's the purpose of a prayer? Well, we're just going to have to combine some of these things together. The purpose of the prayer is that Jesus prayed that the glory that he laid aside when he took the form of a servant was made in the likeness of men would be restored in God's presence to him. Now, it's really interesting when you read uh, John 17, those verses. He says, Father, be honored to come. Glorify your son. You've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. This is eternal life they might know you. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before. It's almost like contradictory thoughts there. He's talking about a glory he had in eternity past. And then he took on the form of a servant. And he took on humanity. God became a man through the virgin's womb. And that now that uh, he has taken on, he's laid aside that glory, and now he's praying that that glory he had in the eternity past will be restored to him now. And yet there were times where he, this glory of God shone forth from him. Every so often he would do something, a miracle or whatever it might, 
and it would say, and the glory of the Lord was revealed. And so he had it, he didn't have it, he had it time to time, but now he's praying that that eternal glory is going to be restored to him. He has perspective and layers of understanding as he moves through these petitions. And if you were just to go in and see the specific things for which he prayed, you would find there are at least six different petitions that he makes. And it's almost like you've got to read the whole chapter through. You've got to see the, 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 the seamless woven tunic in it. And then you capture it because one is built on the other that leads into the other prayer request. What I want you to think of this morning, though, as you think of the glory of God and the glory of Jesus as he's praying to be restored. When you think of the glory of God, I want you to think of simply this. It's the sum total of all the graces and attributes of God. That's the glory of God. Think of, when you think of God, what you know of him from the scriptures, think of all the graces and all the glory, all the attributes of God Almighty. That is, in its fullest essence, the glory uh, of God. I want you to also be reminded, if you read through this chapter, and I'm certain the words of my Bible, the word glory appears eight times, eight different times, one after another, from beginning to the end. Eight times the word glory is done. But now what I want you to see, and this is easy to jump over, and yet it's a key, is verse 1 of chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, Father, the hour has come. There's the key. The hour has come. It wasn't the hour at any other time that the glory of God could be once again revealed and, and Jesus would, would have that glory of God totally upon him again, but it wasn't until the hour has come. What is an hour? What do you feel when you think of the, the hour has come? It's obviously a, a anticipation uh, at a point in time of boundless opportunity that lies before him. When he is speaking of the hour, that's the purpose for why he was born. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That was the hour that Jesus is talking about and talked about throughout his ministry. When he began his ministry three and a half years before John 17, he's at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. His mother apparently is one of the hostesses. And she comes to him and she makes this statement. She says, they have run out of wine. Worst thing you can do is run out of wine at an Israeli wedding. The feast would last for seven days up to a week. In fact, it was even recorded that if you ran out of food or you ran out of wine, you could legally be sued. And so it was a very bad thing. You had to make great provision. Well, Mary's looking around. She says, they have no wine. Well, why did you say that to him? Well, you know why she said it to him. He's going to do something about it. He's going to magnify his, and, and, and show forth his glory. And yet, when Jesus hears her say that to him, you notice that what he said to her was, Woman, what am I to do with you? Then he says, Mine hour is not yet come. Now, that's not a disrespectful phrase. It's a little different phrase that a man would use for his mother. But he was showing the distinction. He's speaking of the Lord's <coughs> glory here. He's speaking as the eternal God, not just the one who was born of a virgin. 
But man, he's the same word that he uses at the cross when he looks down from the cross and he says, Woman, behold thy son, that is John the Apostle. John, behold your mother. It's not a disrespectful term, but it shows the distinction. And Jesus is going to fulfill her request by creating the best wine that anyone's ever had to drink in, in Israel or anywhere else. Because the owner said, you saved the best for the very last. And it says then that the glory of the Lord was revealed uh, at that time. And so when he says, though my hour is not yet come, it's that hour of opportunity that would abound. And now as he comes to the cross three and a half years later, and he said to Mary, my hour is not yet come. In chapter 7, he said to his disciples, my hour is not yet come. In chapter 8, he said to his disciples, my hour is not yet come. It flows through the Gospel of John until now, he says, my hour is come. That was the year, that was the hour, that was the moment that my hour has come for why he came to earth. Now, before Jesus went to the upper room, before John 17, there's a little verse tucked away in John 12, 24, and it says this. These are Jesus' words. I'm going to set the stage. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it must bear fruit. Now, this is why his hour had not come yet. Previously, For Jesus knew that his work and the work of God is never accomplished apart from the principle of death. He knew that. Except the kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it can't bear fruit. Jesus came to bear eternal fruit. You are that fruit. He shall see the travail of his soul, and he'll be satisfied. But he knew unless the kernel of wheat died, there couldn't be life that would come about. So he would finally say, my hour has come. He knew that no matter how many miracles or works he did, how, how great a cleanse he made. And think of it with John, water to wine. Noble, but my son is gone. He's in Capernaum. You're here and came to 18 miles away. Go your way. Your son lived. And the noble that finds he was healed at the very hour. See the impotent man put him off for 38 years. Rise, take up your bed and walk. See the hungry multitude, 5,000 men, possibly 5,000 women, 10,000 children. Give them to eat. See the disciples terrified on the storm, and Jesus walks on the water. See the blind man, the only one in the Bible with a congenital disease, blind from his birth. Go wash in the pool slum. See him at the funeral, the wailing. Lazarus, come forth. But all that wouldn't mean a thing without the kernel of wheat falling into the ground. Dying. Only when it dies does it bring forth fruit. The stress here is upon Jesus' eternal glory and his glory that he has now and will for all eternity. And I don't want to in any way diminish that, but if that is the true interpretation, and it is, there is a lot of application for us. 
an hour that comes, when we say, my hour has come. When you realize, because the Holy Spirit of God has revealed it in your mind and in your heart and your spirit, that if there is a purpose God has for you, each one of you, that you are created with a purpose in mind, and you get away from all the riffraff and all the clatter and all the stuff and the noise around you. And the Spirit of God does a work in your heart and you say, what? My hour has come. And what must you do from that hour to go? You must die. If any man is willing to follow me, let him take up his death. Let him take up his cross and follow me. That's then we're looking. If any man will lose his life, he shall find it. If any man tries to save his life, he shall lose it. Blessing, fruit, purpose, fulfillment all come when the kernel of wheat dies in the ground and then fruit is produced. Have you died? Have you died to self? Do you continue to die? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. He said in another letter, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, Christ died in vain. But he didn't. Carl Wheat went into the ground. On the third day, it arose. And now there's fruit all around the world that we see. Do we consider each of our circumstances opportunities to die with Christ in order to live in the power of his indwelling life? Jesus prayed this for himself. Jesus prayed for his apostles verses 9 to 19. Here it is in summary, and there's quite a few of you will see the visions. But let's summarize it just to get the flow of thought. Jesus prayed that his apostles may reveal the glory of God. That's you. That's them. While walking in holiness based upon absolute truth in fulfilling their mission. Now just trace it through with me. You can see it on the screen. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am glorified in them. 13, that they may have my joy. Verse 17, sanctify them. Set them apart for holiness. Where do I find them? Your word is truth. What's the reason? I have sent them into the world. That's your mission as a church. That's why you send a pastor. That's why you have a program locally in universe, uh, and around the world. That's the mission. And Jesus is praying for all that. And in the midst of the sorrow, grief, and pain, and disappointment that has faced these apostles, and now with Gethsemane and Calvary coming upon, it's interesting to me that the first mark of the Christian that Jesus brings out in all this sadness, gloom, and despair is the joy of the Lord. But now I am coming to you with these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled 
in themselves. Jesus said, the joy I gave you, no man, gave you, no man can take it from you. They weren't experiencing much joy at this moment. Jesus prays for that. If you go back just a chapter in John 16, notice a, an illustration he uses, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you'll weep, you'll lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but catch this, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. And he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born in the world. What I want you to catch here is the principle, I think, which is God brings joy to our lives that has nothing to do with the circumstances around you, in a sense. Joy is a gift of the Lord. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace. And God brings joy to our lives, not by substitution, take this away and bring this in, not by substitution, but by transformation. And as you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holding the chuckle of God, which is your reasonable service, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may be conformed to the image of Christ, and know the good and perfect will of God. The same baby that brought the pain to, to the mother through childbirth becomes the very source of joy when she puts that baby to her breast. The thing that caused the pain, now she's completely forgotten about it. And God has brought the joy by transformation. Not substitution, but transformation. Let me move to the last thing we'll be done. Jesus prayed for the church. Verses 20 to 26. I think this kind of summarizes it for you. Jesus prayed that his church may glorify God as they appropriate the love of God towards us and through us as we endeavor to keep the unity of the Holy Spirit. So he prays for his church to have unity. I don't ask for these only, but those who believe will believe in me. That's you, that's future tense. Here's Jesus' prayer for you. That they all may be one, just as you follow. Notice how he always goes back to the Trinity. The love, the unity, the fellowship of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That becomes the heaven. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are me, and I am you, that they also may be us. So the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. Now that's Jesus' prayer. Robert Murray McShane is another Scottish preacher. He died uh, 179 years ago on Friday. And it's incredible. He died at the age of 29. He pastored St. Peter's Church in Dundee for seven years. And here I am, 179 years later, still talking about him, as many are on the continent of America as well as the continent of Europe, that he had such a great influence. Amazing. Then he wrote these words. Listen to these words. I had a woman who's been a Christian for years, a wonderful Christian leader. And just two weeks ago, she said, I never heard that uh, any truth like that in all my life. What did he write? He said this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, just think of it the next time. 
We go through a heavy time, a dark time, a time of death, a time of discouragement, a time of loss. It looks like it's more than you can bear. And then McShane writes, if I could hear Christ praying for me just in the next room. Ever hear somebody pray for you out loud and they didn't, you didn't, they didn't know that you were listening to them pray for you? Virgin, and, and I had a great dad. I remember dad praying when I was all out far bred from God. Over 60 years ago, sneaking up the back stairs, out in the world, very young and deeds, praying for his youngest son. You never forget that prayer. I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room. He said, I would not fear a million enemies, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me, and he's praying for you. And in your darkest hour, when your hour has come, he is interceding for you. We can't get into all this, what unity is and what it's not. Let me tell you, though, it's not uniformity. What uniformity go about an hour from here? You'll see uniformity. It's called parasitism. That's what you call uniformity. You've got to have it in the military. It's not union. It's not just something, conglomeration of all the religions come together and just saying what we agree with. No, unity is what is the Holy Spirit produced. Listen, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and every believer in Christ since that day, Acts 2, has experienced without even knowing it the moment he put his faith in Christ, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is the act of Jesus Christ by the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit, whereby he places the believing sinner into union with Christ in his body. He's established the unity he's already established. When Christ looks down the court of God, the church is done, the church is seated in the heavenlies, Paul says, even now. It's all done. It's complete. But Paul would say, never to keep the unity. Get off your high horse. Get off the one year way. Get away from all what your preferences are. No one really gives a rip. Last three years have been a hard time for the church. I've known wonderful churches that have split down the middle. I've known pastors that have just got word of one that committed suicide. The burden becomes great. But someone's falling over on wear, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, get a mask, don't get back, who gives a rip? Just lay aside, die yourself. Serve the other person, love the other person. Take the tail of the water, take the towel. Jesus prays for his church to have unity, he prays that his church will practice unconditional love. I am down, verse 23, you and me, that they may be perfectly one. So the world may know that you sent it, and that you love them even as you love me. Get that? God has loved them. That's you. That's me. God has loved them even as he has loved me. How much does God love you? As much as he loves us. You say, you don't know what I'm I say, his son is worthy of love. That's what unconditional love is. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. 
Let's stand, shall we please? 